0: To me, the foundation from that moral authority is clearly defining your purpose and your values and not being scared by the enormity of that task. Because a lot of people are like, whoa, that's like, that's huge. And it absolutely is. It's an ongoing, to me, it's a lifelong process, but like, it starts somewhere. I'm like, put something down and begin working on it. Have your fallback, because when you get in the storm. It's too late for you to go, oh, what am I about? And what values do I want to define? You're, you're looking for the easiest out at that point, like you're in survival mode. But when you have that captured somewhere, you go, no, wait a second. This is who I said I wanted to be when things were hard. Here's my time to practice it. And that muscle gets stronger over time. All right, well, welcome to
1: the Beyond Listening podcast. We've got, it's me, Adam, and we've got Brandon here. And we're joined by Phil Kornicek, And Phil has a background, a military background, and then including that time, almost
0: three decades. Am I getting that right? Uh, two and some change. Pushing, yeah, two and a half, pushing three. Part of it was in the Canadian Army, so there's an exchange rate there we've got to factor in. So about, I'd say about 20, 23 years. Is it going down or up? Yeah, it goes down. Yeah. I think one Canadian okay. year is equivalent to about 0. 0.75 of a U.S. year right now. I'd have to check the markets. Okay. <laughs> right. And so tons of leadership experience,
1: both in the military and in civilian life. And you've worked with not everything from nonprofit leaders to elite military units to sports teams. And I know that you're expanding that out. And you've got stonewater training that does wilderness-based leadership. You do some what sounds like some crazy urban adventures as well and then i'm thinking coaching and and team development stuff in people's offices and on sports fields and things like that so phil we we met you through your work with mountain tough and the folks over at mountain tough were like you got to talk to phil you're both kind of in the pacific northwest you and me are in oregon specifically and we're doing very similar things and we've had a couple conversations and just really happy to be recording this and and get some of what
0: you're doing out to the world so thank you for being here no thanks for having me it's a, it's an honor to privilege i mean every time we get to talk about these things it sort of holds us accountable right you say it now you got to live it exactly exactly so you know we always want
1: to start with the the origin story of your your life's work you know and that's always of course continually evolving You'll probably tell that story differently if you were asked in 10 or 20 years. But from where you stand now, if you look back earlier in life, what's the story that kind of kicked you off
0: on this, this path of leadership training and development? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And I would love to say I have a short answer. I probably don't. So I'll give you kind of- You don't need a short answer. Awesome, all right. People can listen to this at double speed and it'll seem like a short answer. So there's always, there's always options. I think for me, the leadership journey really began in my teens. So I dropped out of high school at 16 and I really didn't know what to do with my life. I was making a series of bad decisions and I ended up joining the Canadian army when I was 17. And that's the first time where I ran into leadership that really, they didn't care about my feelings, they didn't care about my past. They just held me to the standard and uh, I was expected to do it or not. Like failure wasn't an option. So basically I had leaders who held me to a standard and didn't let me quit. And I found out I was capable of performing fairly well under those conditions. I liked the army a lot. This was the early nineties. They had amazing commercials in the US army at the time, like people driving motorcycles out of helicopters and paddling rafts under night vision. Meanwhile, the Canadian army had like seven people and like three guns. So we're like, you know what, Let's, let's see what they got down there. I was a dual citizen thanks to my mom being born in Louisiana. So I joined the US Army as 19 and it was it was easy after doing the army thing for 2 years it was pretty smooth sailing but I had leaders who were like hey man you've got more potential you got more to give you should think about becoming an officer which I thought was absolutely ridiculous because they just seemed to do a lot of paperwork and then they showed me the pay scales and I'm like actually paperwork doesn't look that bad I'll give this a shot so I went from high school dropout to now I was going to Gonzaga University because I had leaders who kind of believed in me, supported me and kind of nudged me that way a little bit. I came back in the military, you know, now as an infantry officer and now I was that leader. So I was trying to figure out, you know, through trial and error, a lot of it, how to effectively lead people, you know, how do you provide them purpose, direction, motivation? How do you leverage influence to achieve an impact outside of just, you know, relying on rank, which as a second lieutenant isn't a very heavy weight to rely on, so. There's a reason there's a lot of jokes about it, But yeah, so I started to cut my teeth. Now I was that leader. Once again, I had a commander, his name was Mick Nicholson, probably one of my top three leaders out there, who, you know, he pulled me aside when he'd go, hey, you know, what are you, what are you doing with your life? Like, what do, what do you love? What are you good at? Where your passion, your talent intersect? He's like, that's where you need to like, go. And he sort of encouraged me to apply to the Rangers, which was, you know, special operations organization in the Army. And, you know, I was like, I, I think I'm wildly underqualified for it. I don't think I'm good enough. And he's like, well, you don't know. The only failure is the failure to try. If you think about it and don't try, you'll never make it. He's like, train up, do your best, leave nothing on the table. And that advice stuck with me, you know, from that point on. I tried it out. I got in, I served there. I was able to, you know, that's where we started this post 9-11. So we started deploying. Now all those leadership lessons were being tested in combat and your ability to influence people when they knew their lives and the lives of their brothers and sisters were on the line. And again, trial and error, just the costs were a lot higher when you made mistakes. And those are deep scars that carry lessons that resonate with you, and are a big part of why I do what I do today. You know, one of the notable folks I worked with was Pat Tillman in 2nd Rain Battalion. So a former NFL safety who joins the Army post 9-11, serves his country as a ranger, so at a very high level, and ends up you know, dying due to friendly fire in eastern Afghanistan. John Krakauer writes a book, I think it's called Where Men Win Glory. It's well-written, in my opinion, the story of Pat. But I mentioned him because I actually didn't, like Pat and I were in different companies, but he's one of those people that independent of his rank, he was relatively new to organization, but just in his behavior, in his words, in his conduct, influenced everyone around him. So that was probably the most clear example I ever saw of, hey, this person's leading, even though they're relatively junior in the organization. Like I was a captain at the time in a different company And I would watch how he spoke, how he trained, how he asked questions, how he treated others. And I'm like, that, I wanna be more like that, even though, you know, technically I senior to him. That was a great lesson for me that like, hey, you can lead wherever you're at in an organization. And then really that pattern of trying out for next level organizations, even when I felt kind of imposter syndrome or underqualified, and then not quitting, like that pattern of doing it and continuing to learn, really continued for about the next 15 years of my military career. I was a Green Beret after I was a Ranger, then I went to some other organizations, and it was that same, like, I have no business being here, but let me throw my name in the hat and see if I can get through the system. And and I did, and uh, it was just interesting to see how far you can get when you just don't quit. Because I, I had folks, I mean, I worked alongside a lot of folks who were college athletes at a high level, had experienced SEALs, experienced Rangers and Green Berets, all these high-end people that I consider bettered myself. And I'm like, man, I, I didn't even get through high school, let alone be a college athlete. But I found out like, hey, it's not about who you were, it's about who you are. We get that choice today. And uh, I worked with with one guy, he was amazing. We were running a screening process for one of these organizations. And every now and again, you'd you'd have someone's resume for lack of a better word fall in front of you and you'd look at it and be like yeah this 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 guy or this gal they made all kinds of silly mistakes you know leading up to this point and we shouldn't even bring them to our tryouts and i remember this guy sitting there looking at me going you know i'm not the same person today that i was yesterday I'm like what's that supposed to mean and he's like man i and he, he started giving me his his background some of the epic mistakes he made and he goes but every day is a new day and those are just lessons learned you can apply you can let them define you, you can learn from them. And so we ended up bringing a lot of people to that selection that otherwise I would have just sniffed at, which is ironic because if you looked at my background, I would have been one of those packets that you're like, this guy, he doesn't belong here. So, and uh, yeah, then, then I, uh, I retired from the military in 2019, had a good friend who was a college football coach. He wanted me to just share some leadership lessons from my background with his team. And we started doing that in combining it with experiential type activities where we take people out of their comfort zone, take them from kind of a traditional power dynamic structure where like, hey, you're the starting quarterback and this kid's like a walk-on kicker who will never see the field on game day. We put them in an environment where it was completely even and you know, worked on, hey, how do we promote cohesion? How do we build leadership within the team? How do we foster a, a vibrant culture that creates a legacy of success? And we were just doing it for fun. And it worked really, really well. I mean, they went from unranked to, they've gone to the national championships twice now in the space of about five years in the FCS. And uh, we both were like, hey, there's something here. He encouraged me to start my own company, which roundabout way led to the formation of Stonewater. So now I work with, as you said, individual leaders and kind of that coaching or one-on-one training basis. I work with leadership teams, Typically, we'll have like the, the leadership orga- leadership of a given organization, and we'll be going through different kind of goal focused systems. And then the funnest the funnest part of what I do is when we go on expeditions and we grab leaders from different industries, smash them together in a small group, and and go into the wild and let them lead themselves safely, but pretty challenging, and see the lessons that percolate down from that and the relationships and the connection that that they're bonded are so amazing. Uh, I think I'm preaching to the choir though, so. As I said, was not a short answer, but uh, thanks for the question. Yeah, it's great. Brandon, do you have do you want to jump in? I...
2: Yeah, as you were telling the story of uh, Pat Tillman, the part that stood out to me or one of the things that stood out to me, especially in the military is the difference between positional authority and like moral authority and how that how that influences people. And so I was just going to maybe ask you how you have either worked on developing that ability to be that moral authority versus the positional authority. Because it's really easy to say, hey, you know what, I'm this rank, do what I say. But it's much different if people just follow you because you carry that sort of moral authority. And so I would just get get your take a little bit around that sense of moral authority versus positional authority.
0: Yeah, no, I I think I think you bring up a key point there because moral authority is really independent of position. I mean, ideally the two are aligned, right? You are in a position of authority and you also have a strong ethical, moral, legal foundation. So you also are, are the, the beacon there. Positional authority, we used to play what's called paper rock rank. it be like, all right, you know, there'd be a lot of debate about a decision. Like, let's play paper rock rank and see who wins. And of course, you know, it's the positional authority that always wins. But when you see moral authority come to play. And I think typically you only see it when there's crisis or friction. Because when things are going well, moral authority is, I mean, it's there, but it's not in your face. It's when you come to that hard decision, you're like, do we mention this? Do we bring this up to higher, Or do we just kind of cover this up? Or, you know, do we take the easy wrong or the hard right? And it's really interesting to see those moral leaders who are just like, kind of shake their head and put their foot down. And, and usually in the moment, you get that queasy feeling in your stomach, like, oh, I know this is right, but there's gonna be serious consequences, most of which we make a lot worse in our head than they really are. And I think that's where having some people who have that moral leadership, moral authority can give the positional leader backbone. Again, ideally the positional leader is perfect and they, they, they have strong moral kind of leadership and authority and positional but we're human. And sometimes you, you kind of justify, you know, the easier wrong or the easier thing today in lots of ways. I think it's a muscle like any other leadership where you just have to practice, you know, looking for hard decisions and then say, no, this is what's right. This is what we're going to do. Practice speaking out loud and being eloquent. Not, you're not confrontational about it, but being firm. And it's a muscle that takes honing, but I think it gets, I'd like to say it gets easier over time. I'm probably saying that because right now I'm not in that sort of challenging spot. That felt like a really interesting place to, to dive in because power in politics
1: and organizations and in teams is something that I think you know, from the outside, we can look in and say, this is what's happening, but from the inside, it takes a certain kind of person to, to
0: really step back and, and understand what's going on and how to move, the, how to move things. It's amazing to me how many times I've seen, or I've been part of, or maybe even been that leader, and and you're at that crisis point, and there's that yeah that hard decision, and and people are kind of wringing their hands, like what do we do? And especially when there's you know it could go either way, and that that person who who has that moral, you know, that strong compass, and they're not afraid to, because usually there's several who feel it, but they just don't want to step up and say it. But that one is yeah. like, hey, I don't think it's the right decision. Here's why. And it's amazing how quickly you can see that tide shift within the organization. They're like, you know mm-hmm. what, you're, you're right. You're saying what we're all thinking. Like, send it. I strive to be that person. But when I see someone like Pat Tillman, like I said, I didn't even know him that well. It's just a lot of it was observing him at distance. We talked maybe five, maybe 10 times. But every conversation had, you could just tell that edge was there. And then the more I I learn about him a lot of it after his death you're like okay that's what i was seeing hearing and feeling it was it was present even if it wasn't coming out in exact words or actions all the time because you know the opportunity didn't present itself so how do you help or do you help
1: cultivate that that same quality you know brandon called it moral moral authority there's probably a range of different types of different ways of talking about it but that leadership quality you know that doesn't depend on position or rank but is really about that you know I think I want to call it mindset because that's mm. the label that you know where I first saw saw you but how do you how do you cultivate that in an individual or within a team
0: in your work the first place i really like to start is probably the hardest place and that's that whole hey what what's your purpose what's your why why are you on this side of the grass and it's independent of your position it's independent of your industry it's even independent of like your family whatever field you've chosen to go into it supersedes that that purpose applies to everything now i'd argue you know for me personally my family is the most important place for me to live my purpose and my values but they're more than that because my you know we could get hit by a bus tomorrow and i could lose everything near and dear to me but my purpose would live on it would hurt it would hurt real bad so I think when you can start to work on articulating a purpose and start to go, what what am I about? What do I want? And you know, what's my epitaph going to be? What's what's the story of Adam or Brandon or Phil all about at the end of the day? I think that's a good start. And then going, okay, if this is my why, then what are the values that I that I want to govern my thoughts, my words, and my actions? What's that compass? And I love the analogy. I use it, you know, all the time when we're out there because it's so true. The analogy of a compass is great. Like. When you do your math right and you plot things right, like it tells you where to go. But so many times we find ourselves looking at it and you're like looking at the train going, "Eh eh-eh. Like, I'm not not going up that slope. Like, I know a better way. I'm gonna shortcut around, I'm gonna bypass. And then we find ourselves in just a mess going, it's two in the morning. You know, I got a water moxin wrapped around my leg. I'm in a swamp and I'm like, probably should have listened to my compass and I wouldn't be here. So I think when you can, You have the purpose which is sort of that why and then you got those values kind of that that moral compass saying hey this is how i'm going to conduct myself and when you define them before you're in the crisis because we're in the crisis your optics all messed up right your framework is is getting rocked and so if it's not in place it's hard to call it up but when people can define their values and i go hey i know i know i make my decisions based on faith integrity discipline love you know excellence and courage like i i know when i'm faced with a tough decision at home, at work, wherever it is, and I can catch my breath and just look at that framework, my decisions become pretty clear. They're not easy, but they're clear. So I think that lends itself to moral authority. If you know integrity is a non-negotiable to you, then when you get in that situation where, man, this would be a lot easier if I said nothing, and then you look at who you want to be, what that compass says, you're like, the better me steps up and acknowledges this or owns it. To me, the foundation for that moral authority is clearly defining your purpose and your values and not being scared by the enormity of that task. Cause a lot of people are like, whoa, that's like, that's huge and it absolutely is. It's an ongoing, to me, it's a lifelong process, but I'm like it starts somewhere. I'm like, put something down and begin working on it. Have your fallback because when you get in the storm, it's too late for you to go, oh, what am I about? And what values do I want to define me? You're You're looking for the easiest out at that point. Like you're in survival mode. But when you have that captured somewhere, to go, no, wait a second. This is who I said I wanted to be when things were hard. Here's my time to practice it. And that muscle gets stronger over time.
2: How would you describe your why at this stage of life?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. See, I need to be careful about what I say because then people might actually check me on it and have to come up with something. Yeah, <laughs> like, let's see how you're doing. Okay, I just, I just talk a good game. I don't actually do a good game, Adam. <laughs> no, so for me, it kind of comes down to three pillars. And this it's been probably in this format for, I'd say, about the last, I don't know, five or six years. So number one is connect and inspire. And that's to me where sort of my passion and my talent intersects. I love building relationships with people or organizations and then helping them pursue a higher level of themselves, Wherever they're at and whatever that looks like, like I just, I wanna help you be the best you, individually or collectively. Secondly, this one's really simple and also very subjective, but just do good you know, I'm 49. I don't know if I look back at my life, I can say I always did good. And this is just, this is Phil Kornacek. This is in my head. I'm not saying everyone should do this, but like, I want my ledger of net positive to outweigh my net negative. And I might be using the word net wrong in that analogy, but the bottom line is I want to leave this planet with more of a positive impact than a negative one. And I want to work every day to try to keep pushing the ball that direction. So that's kind of my second pillar. And then my third is push my limits. I feel like Mentally, physically, spiritually, socially, you know, these are all these different venues. I want to see what it looks like if I full send fill, how much can I do physically? How much impact can I have with my relationships? You know, it goes to every venue of my life. So th- that's my purpose. Three pillars connect and inspire, do good, push my limits. I can do that in any environment, any day. I could have had the worst day ever yesterday but today i can wake up i can reset and be like all right how do i live this i don't need my health i don't need money you always have a venue for your purpose and i mean i'm i'm sure you guys have read victor frankl's man's search for meaning that's kind of the kernel and the inspiration for this thought of if everything is stripped from me what's left and what's my story so
2: i love that book my favorite quote is you know the last of human freedoms is to choose one's own attitude in any circumstance and i've used that over and over in you know Working with individuals, so I love that concept and that idea that it's all about your attitude and your ability to choose it. You get to choose every day. Yep,
0: we'll do a lot of work with leaders about control the controllables, and when you pare it all down, it's literally it's your thoughts and your words. There's not a lot else. Maybe you you know, maybe your actions. If you're if you're physically capable, you might have your actions, but we don't get to pick the circumstances. We do get to pick how we interpret them. Is this an opportunity? Is this a blessing? Is this something I get to overcome and grapple with? Or does this stop me, cripple me, poor me? Like just embrace it. How do you help people find that purpose? It's usually the first block I'll do if I'm working with the leaders. So we've actually got like a a personal mastery course that that Stonewater runs. And after the initial intro, and so first is building self-awareness. Hey, where am I at? Where do I think I'm at? Where do other people see me at? Where do these objective assessments, like let me kind of triangulate from all these inputs and and try yeah. to get a good read of where where I am in life and what my key roles are. And then going from that analysis, going, okay, what do I love? What really like just charges my batteries? What do I seem to be just good at for whatever reason? Those two aren't always the same thing. And then where do I best feel fulfilled? So it's kind of an ongoing thing. And, and it's interesting because like people, tend to focus on the what more than the why like they go man I just I oh, yeah. I love playing football football is my purpose this is what I'm all about I'm like well you know what if you get hit in a bad way and you can't play anymore like is your life over at 27 they're like uh can we just not th-? you know most people don't want to talk about that I'm like, to no, you know no let's peel it back and then a lot of folks with families are like oh my purpose is my family you know I want to raise my kids to have more opportunities, a better life than me. And I think that's, I feel that way every, but that's a what. I'm like, hey, so you want to leave a legacy of, of betterment? They're like, no, no, I just want my kids to have a good life. I'm like, hey, it's a hard conversation, but we're not guaranteed that anyone around us is going to be there tomorrow. So let's be careful about putting all our chips on one person or, you know, a spouse or something like that. And And that's a really tough conversation. And it gets really hard. I've had two friends that have actually lost kids in the last year and one of them i had the conversation about purpose before he lost his kid and you obviously want to be wildly sensitive but he he was the one who brought it up like i get it and it's about what what do do we do with this now the purpose goes forward if it's been anchored in the right place we talked a little bit in one of our previous calls about the wilderness
1: fast and you know it comes from a sort of archetype of the vision vision quest right or the rite of passage and the, the way that i learned it was that boys had to be stripped of everything to find their purpose the women tended to have they could kind of find their purpose more easily but it was the boys that had to go out you know go through some major trial And come back, and the community would actually help them find their purpose through whatever happened out there. Like give them, oh wow, give them a new name, give them like you're you're this, you're that, you're going to do this. And I think about that a lot, and, and especially in terms of what you're saying, in terms of the the crises that everyone's facing. But in particular, I think you know, young young boys. There's more and more coming out. Young men. There's more and more coming out about them. Just yeah, really, really suffering right now. Not, you know, being really scattered, kind of living online or, you know, there's all the, just turn on the news any day. And it's usually boys that are, or men that are committing the atrocities. So it sounds really important, you know, that, that's what, that question doesn't require a going 10 days with just a loincloth and a and a spear into the woods and trying to survive. But just, you know, that question of what, when you're, when everything is stripped away, who are you? why are you here
0: yeah kind of brings it home it's interesting you bring that up because i i do think in crisis a lot of times we do start realizing like whether it's intentional or not i think crisis gives perspective right when you almost die you sort of go whoa hey what is this all about and what if that was my last day or when you have absolutely nothing and you're like you know alone with your thoughts you kind of see things the challenge is You know, you can wait for that to come to you or you can seek it out and go, okay, how do I test myself? How do I put myself in these conditions, you know, safely, obviously, but to dig deep and to explore. It kind of leads me to the next question and which is about the wilderness.
1: And I think in here too, there's, there's a sort of, I guess, two questions here. One is wilderness and the physical, you know, we're talking about mindset and kind of cognitive thinking through things, but how do you, how do you build those two why are those two things so important for your training and, and for what you do, for your purpose?
0: I think on several levels, really. I think first off, in the just day-to-day life we have, there's so many inputs, distractions. There's just so many things around me, right? Like we're, we're talking right now, trying to have a, a conversation about deep things. And I've got emails chiming in, you know, my phone's off to the side. I turned it off because I've learned that the hard way. But there's just so many distractions in our day-to-day life. And if you can get away, like even when I'll do executive coaching with people, I'll be like, let's let's just go walk in, you know, Forest Park in Portland, for example, or where, like, let's just get away. So removing yourself from the distraction, first off. Secondly, I think there's a sense of perspective that comes from being in the wilderness. And it, it doesn't have to be like on the side of Denali. I mean, like, again, I use a Forest Park example, like you just start walking in, just looking at these huge trees and you're looking at the moss that's growing on the trunk and you're starting to see all this perspective and intricacy and this interconnectedness and it, it just even if you're not consciously registering it like i think things start playing out i love the ocean i love the mountains i think both of those give you amazing perspective very quickly of how small you are how insignificant in a way but at the same time how you're the entirety of your world, also. Like you're, you're a small part of this amazing, huge thing, but you're also everything. As far as you, you're, the only thing you truly control is your thoughts, your decisions. And I think wilderness, especially if correctly framed, can give such perspective. I love the leadership stuff. I love being outside, but I'll, I'll always work with guides who they are the experts on the water. They are the experts on the train. I've got one out in Yellowstone that every time we go out there, and we'll be off road, off trail, like we go cross country in Yellowstone and he sees the world in such layers and gives such perspective to people. You know, I look and I'm like, oh, it's a tree. It's a plant. And he starts going through what the plant is and what its purpose is and, and how it got there. And it isn't in this, like he just sees life on a different level and you start realizing like there's levels to things, there's, there's deepness to expertise, there's beauty and everything. And uh, that's, that's where the wilderness charges me up. You yes, asked about the physical piece too. I think the physical realm, our bodies especially, is is one of the easiest places to practice a lot of the mindset. I mean, it's it's sort of that that level one. You know, I can be smart about what I eat. I can move my body in certain ways to become stronger. Even this morning, my my wife and I were in bed, laying there, warm and comfortable. I'm like, yeah, I just don't really want to get up and work out. Like this is perfect right now. And you know, you get to practice that discipline of like, nope, you're gonna get up. You're gonna get on with your day, you're going to be productive, you're going to push yourself to do hard things today to be better tomorrow. And I think in the physical realm, it's that most tangible way to
2: do that. (laughs) Yeah. Like you, Phil, I'm a big fan of the wilderness component to just really lead to that growth. I guess one of the questions I would have for you is how do you find balance in the physicality of the wilderness versus the people who show up? Because I know sometimes with the groups Adam and I have led, you know, we got a range and we try to like tell them up front, hey, this is not army ranger school. This is, you know, we're not really trying to like break anybody, but balancing that wilderness edge so that there is that challenge. There is that piece that really does push them. But it's like, "Hmm." I'm just curious how you how you balance that.
0: It's a really good point i've certainly encountered that before we'll be working with a group where you have you know someone who's had a fairly sedentary life in their early 60s and then you'll have a 30 year old iron man she's like competitive triathlete and they're in the same group and how do i make it so they're each being challenged in their own respective ways without one dying or one being bored and so one thing like Stonewater does is there's you're out you're on the water you're on the mountain but then there's there's the organic adversity of just the train, whether it's the snow or the current or the steepness of the slope or kind of the, the density of the forest and it's hard to navigate through, that's good. But then we'll, we'll normally try to weave in some engineered adversity that might challenge people, you know, intellectually, some problem-solving skills, some social dynamics that will quickly level the playing field. So all of a sudden, you know, the person who rips out an 11-hour Ironman is being faced with kind of a complex problem-solving situation in the middle of nowhere that's kind of been designed ahead of time and set up. Just, she doesn't know. If I do my job right, they don't realize it till after the fact that it was uh, kind of a setup. So it's not all physical challenge. Like I said, they might have, there's some social dynamic they're trying to get through. There might be some technical problem-solving piece, something that causes them to shift gears from just like, hey, I'm climbing up uphill with a 45-pound pack for for six hours, I mean, that's that's hard, but you sort of go numb after a while. Meanwhile, the other, you know, someone who's, who's less physical might just be like, hey, just getting from A to B is my challenge, and like, that's okay. And you sort of dial up, dial down, and we'll tailor the experience where I'll be like, man, Brandon really is demonstrating some strengths in these areas, let's put him in a scenario that can let him capitalize on that and lead the group in this capacity. You know, Adam's got physicality nailed, let's have him, you know, and maybe we'll even like handicap someone in a way know set something up where that person who is fitter there's some additional tasks that the group will put on them to capitalize on that strength and mitigate others you know challenges
2: thank
1: you you make me think phil one one of the my early guiding experiences i was apprenticing with a guide in on the big sur coast i would lead from the front he would lead from the back right so if, you know the trouble falls to the back the challenges fall to the back so he put me up at the front, and I see this one of the participants goes ahead of me. She's like, "I'm just going to go a little bit ahead," and I'm like, "Okay, cool. You know, I'm not, I'm not your parents, you know, whatever." And I said, "But stop at the at the junction. It's very clear. Stop there, away from me." She said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." So I get to the junction, and she's nowhere to be seen. Right. So I'm like, "What? You know, I, I think you know, I'm a rookie. Like, what am I? I failed. I wait for the next person. I say, stay here." And she was like a mile or two ahead. I had to run, right? And I catch up to her. She's like, this is too slow for me. And I go, you know, there's going to be a lot of pacing. We're going to find our rhythm. You know, you can go ahead. But just for this first stop, I really needed you to, to wait here. And she goes, this is just like my husband. I'm always waiting for my husband. And I'm not here to wait. I do enough of that at <laughs> home. And, and um, <laughs> so she... You know, I, I say, okay, you could talk to the main dude, right? And say, talk. And she dropped out of the, the program. Oh, wow. Like, I'm not here to do this work. You know, I'm not here to go slow. Oh, so in that case, you know, I learned that, hey, you know, some people's work is going to be going slow, actually. Yep. And some people, you know, and maybe they need some additional support.
0: Anyway, it's just a little anecdote. And actually, when you said that, it reminded me of one thing. So Brandon, what we'll typically do with the Stonewater events is they'll be leading themselves through it. And so they'll be navigating. We'll, we'll give them upfront you know, navigational training, both before they show up and then we'll do a class in and, and practical exercise in person, depending on the length of the event. But it's amazing how when people are really navigating and paying attention, they move a lot slower. All of a sudden it's not about how fast mm-hmm. you can go because you can be David Goggins, you can go really fast, but if you're going the wrong direction, I mean, it's like life, right? If you're full thrust, but going on the wrong vector, that speed doesn't help. So when we have them navigating and it's like, yeah, you can't use these trails and put them in some dense areas, everyone moves a whole lot slower. And there's a lot of map checks. It's, it's kind of neat to watch the group kind of come together. Cause you know, they're anxious. No one wants to get lost and we let them get lost. Like I, my, my poor guides sometimes are like, Phil, like we are three miles off course. I'm like, I know they'll figure it out. I mean, we'll walk a little more, but this is how we learn. Some guides only work with stone water once.
2: Yeah. yeah sure. <laughs> so one of the questions that I've been thinking about as you've been talking about these experiences, Phil, is like, if I come across an individual, who would stand out as someone to recommend to come to your course? Like, who are you looking for? Yeah, I think it's
0: someone who's looking to challenge themselves in that leadership capacity, who goes, you know, I'm pretty comfortable, I'm doing well. They're kind of in their comfort zone going, I need something that's gonna push me a little to that, that next level of growth. I want some ambiguity. I want some challenge. I want something I can prepare for. And I want to connect with other folks. What I've found is a lot of people, especially when you start getting to C-suite on these different organizations, they are lonely as hell. They're in leadership positions. They have lots of people around them, but they don't have that close connection. Either, you know, it might be a, a competitive industry. It might just be the the culture, the social dynamic, but it's, it's lonely. So what I love, probably my favorite thing is watching this group of, you know, it could be anywhere from four to, to 12 people coming together, going through this. A lot a lot of the challenge is really just the ambiguity. And, and we create things scarier in our head than they are in reality. So there's a little bit of anxiety, tension. They've got that shared experience. And we facilitate some pretty real conversations. They connect to others really closely. And so I think that would be, probably the ideal person is it's like, hey, you're in a leadership role. You're looking for a way to stretch and grow something a little out of the ordinary. And then if you're looking to connect, I think there's some exceptional opportunities in what we do and, you know, which you guys do as well.
1: Can you think of a kind of peak experience with a client individual or group where you saw you saw some some magic happen?
0: Yeah, there's a lot I've got to go through my Rolodex here. Um, yeah, you probably, yeah. It's
1: the one that stands out, you know, spontaneously right now in the moment.
0: Yeah, I'm, so I'm thinking it's, it's probably one of the more recent events we ran. This was on the Santiam River in Oregon. It was a group, I think there was seven of us, but some of them had no familiarity or comfort with the water. Like they were like, yeah, this is not, this is not my happy place. And we were talking all about leading with flow. Like, hey, how do you, like, the environment's moving, life's going. Like, how do you lead through that? Do you fight it? Do you capitalize on it? Can you read it and really see it? So there's a lot of anxiety initially. We spent the first, you know, the the first while was on kayaks. So it's like leading yourself. And then we transitioned to where we're doing all this work on rafts. And it it wasn't a crazy river. I mean, it was spring on the Santiam. So I think we were getting up to like class three but we progressively would increase the heat on the group especially as their competency level and confidence rose so this group that had been apprehensive about being in the water period they were guiding themselves like yes we had guides there but just the nature of the river they were in small rafts each guiding themselves and then like the cumulative event we had where they basically had to do a rescue rodeo where i was i was in a solo raft I bail, I flip it, they've got to rescue me, get the raft, flip it over, coordinate and synchronize it. And ideally before we got into the next set of rapids, the river was flowing faster than expected. We ended up getting to that rapids while they're they're doing the rescue rodeo. But it was just pretty wild to watch this group of relative novices. And I think they had one or two that did have some experience, but it was the inexperienced ones who took lead on that whole you know, recovering me, securing the second raft, getting the gear, flipping it, and and it was seamless. Now, if we had told them three or four days prior, like, this is what you're going to do, showed them a video of it, they'd been like, yeah, it's not happening. Like, I'm, there's no way, I'm not, I'm not even going, this is crazy. But then to watch them after, and they were just like, you know, when we talked about that, like, hey, what? talk me through where you at, how you felt about it. And they're like, yeah, no, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, we had practiced the components, we had talked through, we rehearsed this piece, we know who was doing what. And it just kind of flowed. And when things fell through, we just adjusted the plan. But, And I'm like, I just want to talk you through in sequence what you did and ask yourself, you know, 96 hours ago, would you believe it? And just watching them like, oh, yeah, it is pretty wild. And then, of course, just when they got got comfortable, then we take them somewhere else, threw another curveball at them on the way home to get dinner. But that's another story.
2: Yeah. So thinking, you know, we're both extensive backgrounds in the military, and I'm always curious as as people make this transition and you made it a few years ago as you retired, I know this will be a hard question to ask you to define it down to one thing. So maybe if it's one or two things, those key principles that you've brought with you, what did you bring with you when you made the transition as far as like a, the leadership component that you brought to Stonewater from your military time?
0: It was interesting too, because of my military background, especially my last, I'd say 10 years of a the places I was working in the special operations community, we were probably a lot closer to a tech startup than we were the traditional military organizations. And I didn't realize that until, you know, when I was transitioning out of the military and i was working now with conventional people to out process and do my retirement. And I'm like, oh, we all speak different languages. And they were really upset with me because they were missing 10 years of records for me. And I'm like, no, no, I was, I was in the army. I just I was in a different group, so, yeah. so I guess my my military experience might not be super traditional. But I think, let's see, things, a big takeaway for me is kind of what I said earlier, the only failure is a failure to try. I Meaning you get one shot at this life, as far as we can tell, at least in this physical form. Don't be the 80-year-old going shoulda, woulda, coulda. So what is my best and how do I get there? And I don't mean that in a selfish, transactional, monetary way. I go, I, want, I don't know, what's your biggest impact, your biggest life? You know, my wife's 44. She's a third-year med school student now with eight kids. And part of that was a conversation of, don't leave anything on the table. The thing with the military there is I shared how I tried out for a number of organizations. And every single one, I felt wildly unprepared. I'm like, I have no right to be here. You know, whether it was becoming an officer, whether it was going to the Rangers or trying not to be a Green Beret or other stuff, I was always like, I'm not good enough. And then I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to give it a shot. So something I carry with me is, you know, the only, only failure is the failure to try. I warn people when I coach them, I go, listen, I'm the sole provider for a family of 10. And I left a comfortable job to start a business with no real business experience in a market that I had no connections in. And I have zero regrets. So I'm like, don't tell yourself why you can't accomplish something. Tell yourself what you need to do to make it happen and then go for it and just keep relentlessly pushing.
2: One of the things I, I 100% ask probably every person I meet, and this is kind of how Adam and I really started to connect a number of years ago. If you're meeting with someone and you have one book that you're like, you've got to read this book. If I'm gonna coach you, you have to read this book. What book is it?
0: That's a hard question, but I'm gonna say "Man, search for meaning. I mean, I think it all comes down to purpose. like. What's your why? I think it's like the Nietzsche quote, right? A man who has a why can endure any how. If you go, this is why I'm on this side of the grass, the other stuff, it might be hard, but you can, you'll can, you figure that out over time. Then you can read the second book i tell you to read. But yeah, start with Man Search for Meaning.
2: What's the second book?
0: I really like Seven Habits, of highly effective people. It's an oldie but a goodie. I mean, it just talks about a value-driven life, right? Like, identify your values and and how do you incorporate them in day-to-day life. It took me two years to get past the first chapter of that book, and then I read it all in 22 hours straight. I was on an empty cargo plane flying back from Afghanistan, so I had time on my hand. But once I realized like, whoa, there's, this really works if you apply it, like there's gold in it, that one was great. That was a very good at how to live your life.
2: It's great, I love that book too, yeah.
0: Cool, so we've talked about the work that you do
1: for other people, but the three of us also are, you know, we're building a business and building businesses. Right. And there's you and I've talked about some of the challenges and the ups and downs, and I think it'd be really good to to hear from each other and, you know, talk about you know the challenges of that, you know, and what you said kind of at the highest level, kind of, you know, it's about the why you'll figure out that. If you know the why you'll figure out the how. But I'm curious what your what your learning edges or in the leadership of your own business and, and growing
0: this thing are right now, what you're what you're learning. Yeah. So a, a lot, right? And I think one thing that's really coming through to me is to be consistent, meaning have your purpose defined, you know, have your organizational purpose, organizational values, you know, be clear on that. And then really just trust the process. They, you know, execute the plan It's not saying execute the plan and lose all awareness of if it's working or not, but I'm, I'm watching kind of the ups and downs where things sort of boom and then seasonality or just, you know, something falls flat and there's a tendency to want to like, at least for me as a small business with a small team, like we just want to let's pivot and chase what looks like is, is the next thing and, and going, no. This is what we do. This is what we're good at. There's value and kind of that hedgehog principle. Stay with what we've got. And and again, you know, I had a few challenging months where it's like, wow, was this the right answer? And I just kept telling myself, okay, trust the process. Do be smart about it. But like, stay consistent. Do the work. Remember why you do it. And you know, one day at a time. What's the next action I can take to move you in the right direction? It's all about trust in the process. You just got kind of like, oh, man, this is never gonna work because I've had a bad two months, three months. I think that's been huge for me, you know, having that why. And because it's like my end game isn't about making, I gotta make 2 million next year or this or that. I mean, I'm not, I would be upset if that happened, don't get me wrong, but my end game is helping purpose-driven, value-based leaders and teams take it to the next level. Like, how do I help people be their best selves? And that gives you a lot of extra drive than if it's like, no, no, I need to make X amount or close this many deals. I've been pretty pleased so far with how it's working. I think what keeps me going is the emails, the calls, the texts from people I've worked with who are sharing their wins, you know, who are like, yeah, hey, just so you know, yeah, I've got one guy I've been coaching. And yeah, he's a guy I coach remotely, he's down in Texas. runs his own business and it was same thing, right? Roller coaster ride and he came this close to walking away from it all. And is like, just trust the process, do the work. Like no one said it's gonna be easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. Like, and watching him now, you know, like six months later, he's just exact opposite picture. He's just like more business and he knows what to do with doing great work. I mean, it's just, you're like, it's a good feeling. I feel like
1: if you were just trying to make a bunch of money, you know, you could do anything, right? There's there's a million options for that as an entrepreneur, if you have the means to sort of start something. But when you're doing something that's close to your heart, you're creating it out of your own experience, you're putting yourself out there with all of that, that those, those down months sting a little bit more, <laughs> right? Because it's like, I mean, even though all of us are on this call right now are pretty, I think we're like, you know, relatively evolved human beings, you know, I'm not sure what relative to what, I'm not judging anyone, but we think about things deeply. There's still a little like sting of validation. Like, hey, is this is this purpose really gonna is it really needed in the world? You know, comparison, all that other stuff kind of shows up. Whereas if you're just like, hey, I didn't sell as many widgets this month, let's throw another ad out there. I think it's a little different, right?
0: Yeah. I you know, it's interesting. I for me, I don't know if it's a validation thing because because what I do with clients, like I tell them this all the time, I go, look, it's not professor-student relationship. I'm right there alongside you. I'm, I'm sharing with you, yeah, what I'm learning, but I've, I'm i practicing mastery every day of this. And yeah. like, I honestly get a ton of validation just practicing it myself. And there's times where I'm like, you know, yeah, maybe I don't have the volume of business right now that that I'd love to see or the impact I think I could have. But I know it works and I know it's good. And it's, it's because people haven't seen or tried it i just finished a book by michael gervais uh, the first rule of mastery is and i might butcher the title but it's the first rule of mastery is not caring what other people think and he does a really good job where he he talks about like hey you know you just be authentic fully realized self and a lot of it's taught more as an individual but like i think of it you know as stonewater is you know as, as your guy's business like if it's good, stay with it and kind of work on having that internal validation. That's me saying it because it's been a good month, Adam. Yeah, last month I'd be like, "This sucks and no one, no one likes me or what I <laughs> yeah. sell." Yeah, <laughs> I try to remember those bad months so that when, when if we ever get back there, it's like, okay, th- I know this territory. <laughs> I got it. Yeah, this is the desert. Yeah. You got to keep walking. Drink water. Keep yeah. walking. Yeah, yeah. And
1: you know, one other thing I, I've been doing recently is like reading stories of entrepreneurs. And thinking about, there was an article from the founder of NVIDIA, the tech, you know, and 30 years, trillion dollar company now or something. They're doing okay. He, they're doing all right. Yeah. But he was like almost bankrupt three times, mm. you know, and just, he said, I would never do this again. But those, you know, those down months, they sting. Like for those of us that are, we're the sole breadwinners, which I think is the three of us on this this call. And we think about it in terms of the month. You look back on a career like Apple or something or a company and it's like, yeah, you know, 30 years. Well, now they're successful, but on the month to month, it's it's a little bit different. So there is a mindset thing in there, too, you know, on the, for us that are doing this, that you know trying to see that bigger picture and remembering that, remembering that it might sting right now. But next month's going to be different or next week's going to be different, or even tomorrow when you get that email from a client that's like, hey, I'm, I'm killing it
0: right now. Thank you for, for that thing, one thing you said or whatever. Yeah. I guess there's one other lesson, too, I'd share, and that is, so I had a really successful summer, and things were booming, and I scaled my organization to match the volume of business I had then. So I grew it, brought people on board, great people, and then all of a sudden, fall hit and things slowed down to where I had other people dependent on me, but not the business or the income. And there was some really hard decisions there, and some some tough conversations because, like, I love to care about these people genuinely did, and I'm like, what's this like? How do we how do we navigate this best? And you know, we got through it. There was some cuts and bruises, but scars heal, and you learn from them. But that was my big takeaway: is like, hey, don't plan based on your best day. Plan on you know where some of the challenges are, and make sure you have an organization that can sustain itself. Because I definitely got. Sort of overinflated based on my best success, and you know I share that candidly. Like it was, it was an ignorant mistake on my part, and certainly learned it the hard way. Yep, those are the best lessons though. And there's
1: not a lot of us, you know. I think if you listen to or you read about entrepreneurs, you know, people telling you how to do great, but then sometimes we just need to share the share those bruises with
0: each other. And, you know. Yeah, got to touch the stove. Is it really that hot? Yeah, I'm like oh yeah, it's really yeah. hot.
2: Yeah, I like that. I like that yeah there's a quote that says the best lessons or the, the lessons most learned are the most painful
1: yeah we're gonna have phil help us with a program in 2024 called strength to serve so you're going to be we still haven't figured out the topic yet but maybe something we talked about today as part of our four-month course you're going to do a, a module and a live live session so we're really excited to kind of get more of your More of your mindset and experience influencing what we do. And hopefully you'll you'll join us on one of those three to four-day uh
0: wilderness fasts at some point. I'm looking forward to it, except for the not eating part. That's a little scary for me. For someone who (laughs) eats every 45 minutes, there's a (laughs) cold shiver when you say fast. Well, if there's anything we can do to scare you, just just you know where to find us. There you go. There you go. It's just hey, I'll wrestle a grizzly bear, but don't tell me I can't eat after. All right. I appreciate you guys. Thanks so much for uh, the opportunity, Adam, and Brandon, so good meeting you as well. I look forward to connecting here in the near future. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being here.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Beyond Listening podcast. For more information on how to adapt to a world of rapid change and flux for yourself, your organization, and your community, visit us at weareopencircle.com.